Welcome back to Radical Ones. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with my producer, Phineas. Phineas, we have a very exciting guest on this episode. Yeah, I don't really know how to do the intro for this gentleman, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, we were incredibly privileged to have Martin Luther King III on the show. Obviously, he needs no introduction, but an American human rights advocate the eldest son and eldest living child of civil rights legend Martin Luther King Jr. He is an inspiring person through and through, insightful on many fronts. I think our biggest challenge with this episode was figuring out where to go with it because we could go so many different directions. Totally. So it just felt like a privilege to have him on the show. 100%. And you're right. In in some ways, we have some folks we bring on the show that are attacking a very specific problem. But then you have... People like the King family, we're trying to in- inject our society with more love and understanding and liberty uh, and justice and, and all those things. And so that's a more broad ideological conversation. But what a time to be able to talk to someone like this, right? Like there hasn't been a fervor around racial justice like this since his father was leading the charge in the 60s. And I was so interested to hear. One, as someone who lost his father, you know, when I was young, like what parts of his father did he codify, you know, and, and try to bring with him as I'm sure he was like, he fully understood, like, look, I'm Martin Luther King's son. Like people are going to expect me to be able to continue to carry the torch. And you just got to think like, so what does that mean? What does it mean? What does the King legacy mean? And like, think about like the mentors he was surrounded with, you know, and all these people, the Al Sharptons and, and Jesse Jacksons and all the folks that, you know, he considers his like uncles, you know, and it's helping shape this young man. And so I was just really interested to hear like what that sounded like, like, how did he, how did he codify his father's lessons and what guided him? And then also when he reflected on the movement today, what felt missing? Like they were so strategic in the sixties. And not that they're not strategic now, but there was a real strategy. And I just wondered, you know, what he what he was impressed by also on the flip side, what was working today that maybe they didn't try in the 60s. And he's been really impressed by. There's also more tools available. There's social media, all these other things, et cetera. And then where did he feel like uh, maybe parts of the old strategy could have been helpful that wasn't being brought into the fight today? So I certainly learned a lot. And it was like you said, it was just an honor. Well, I don't have one issue that I'm working on. Uh, What I would like to believe is that what we're working on is creating a better nation and a better world for all of God's children, which is a huge, huge uh, task and is going to take a lot of coalition building. So my father in his life talked about eradication of the triple evils. And my mom talked about it, you know, many, many years after my father was gone. My father's now been gone for uh, 53 years. And um, it had my mother lived uh, on yesterday, April 27th, she would have been uh, 94 years old. She's been gone 15 years now. But The triple evils dad identified were the evil of poverty, the evil of racism, 
and the evil of violence. So the eradication of the triple evils, and I'm, I'm doing this through the organization that I've worked with for a long time called the Drum Major Institute. My father founded it 60 years ago as the Drum Major Foundation with one of his attorneys, Harry Wachtell. And the purpose of that organization at that time was just to focus on raising money to bail people out of jail. So oh, it started as a bail institute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Essentially. I mean, wow. that was that was largely yeah. what it was for. To raise to have Bail a fund. place for funding so that people who were arrested often which which happened often, as we know, in the modern civil rights movement. So in in the nineteen nineties, Harry's son, Bill Wachtell, myself and Ambassador Andrew Young, uh, started it and changed the name to the Drum Major Institute. So when we talk about eradicating the triple evils, it's through drum major and a whole huge coalition. And we believe the values of peace, justice, and equity create the prospect to address these triple evils. Now, in our, in our United States, when we look in the United States, I should say, when you look at poverty, which is, you know, some outlets will say, well, you know, we've got 45, 46 million people. But if you talk to Reverend Dr. William Barber and others, uh, they will tell you that it's well over 100 million people. Right. So almost a third of the population is living at the poverty level. And we act like that's not true. We act like, okay, well, it's all right to have just 45 million. We don't have, we, don't, we just have 45 million. So the point is, there's a huge issue in a nation with a multi-trillion dollar economy. Mm -hmm. And yet, we are focused only on the rich getting rich and not figuring out how do we redistribute the wealth and resources so that every family can take care of themselves and their families. So, so the triple evils, we, we have violence, racism, and poverty. I always say, you know, my, my life's mission is to eradicate desperation, which is probably, it's like another word for poverty, right? And I mm -hmm. kind of signaled that out as the like first pillar. And then I, I kind of almost want to see what racism and violence looks like after you eradicate poverty. Cause I think, I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, th those other two pillars are brought on by the desk, you know, by people being in desperate circumstances or that scarcity mindset that we see now, of course, there's like systemic things at play as well. You know, how we've set up our system against certain people, but that's a big challenge. Do you see poverty as that first pillar? Do you see them all as equal pillars? And like, what are the most effective ways you are currently leaning into like achieving that mission? That's a very good question. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I certainly believe that as a proposal, uh, if we create the climate so that poverty is uh, almost abolished, uh, certain things will begin to change. But when you talk about, you know, racism, it is such a huge concept in our world. And partially it's, it's European cultural supremacy. Mm -hmm. You may, may have heard that one of the Congress members, members of Congress from our state, and I don't like to promote people, but somehow she's emerged as this person who's a conspiracy theorist, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, and she wants to create an entity that really promotes European cultural supremacy and separatism in a real sense. It's a, it's a modified method of elevating 
what the Klan was trying to do in in some sense. Right. And it's it's so my my point is the fact that you have people who are interested in joining this is a sad commentary. Now she's one person, but there are millions of people who think like her, unfortunately. And I think what we're seeing in the global context, because you know, racism is not just in the United States. It it reverberates throughout the world from many countries in Europe. You know, Brexit was some defined a mechanism of racism. Now, some British people will say it was British taking their own taking their own affairs under control. But you've also got in Italy nationalism rising and racism. You've got it in Paris, you know, with Marie Le Pen. I mean, these people who really are staunch racists who have the prospect of becoming heads of state. Then go down to Brazil. Brazil has the largest population of Afro-Brazilians and more people from Africa and Brazil than we got in the United States. There's about 45 million blacks in the U.S., 60 million in Brazil, and yet all there's so much oppression. So I'm saying... That's therefore you can't just, but they also have poverty too. And the ones who in most impoverished conditions happen to be, you know, in the communities of color. Mm -hmm. So you really have to figure out how do you address these issues in organized fashion? Uh, It does make sense to address one at a time, but I'm not sure we have that luxury. I have to, I have to do some more thinking about that. No, no, no. I think it's, look, a lot of people are addressing them all the time. I just wonder as, as someone like, you know, you've spent your time like identifying your family spent this time identifying these triple evils. The racism one is, is almost the trickiest cause it's so insidious and it's so, um, it's like the reverberations of, to your point, European colonialism. It's got this like, mm-hmm. it's got this like ancient history and it, it feels like less of something we're opting into at times than like the violence or the poverty. Like in my opinion, and you, you, your father was a great champion for this. You've become a great champion for this. Poverty in a lot of ways now with the production capabilities we have is a policy choice. Mm-hmm. We can institute, you know, things like just producing enough of the food and shelter we need. We can, if we don't want to, you know, if people are too scared of the C word or the S word, communism or socialism, we can institute things like basic income or guaranteed income that your father has been a great champion of. You're, you're a great champion of our friend, Andrew Yang, also champions. And so in, in many ways, well, it's this massive problem. It also feels like a policy choice that we just maybe have to do an advocacy campaign, a really strong advocacy campaign, and even poor rural whites can can stand to benefit from the eradication of poverty. When you think about that racism leg, let, let's say we solve the poverty thing, what mm-hmm. else needs to be addressed? What are, what are the other effective strategies you've seen in t- in, that you would like us to take uh, or take more proactively to combat racism in our country? Well, number one, see, also nonviolence comes into play. Mm. Because nonviolence teaches you to, you know, address not the individual, but the issue. In other words, it's not this is not a personal scenario where you denigrate the person. And, and that's part of what our problem is. So if we started a campaign to treat people like you want to be treated at the highest level, Mm. We can't write off any human being. Uh, And that's the beauty of what this nation personifies, which is choice. The choice, though, is teaching people how do we treat one another with dignity and justice. Think about it. 
Back in 1968, my father was marching with those in Memphis who were sanitation workers. Mm -hmm. And it's ironic that they were marching with signs that said, I am a man, because they were treated less than dignity, with dignity and respect. Uh, they were being paid me such meager wages that some of them, if not all of them, those thousand workers who were sanitation had to be on welfare in addition to working full-time jobs just to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. My point is, you know, 50 plus years later, there's still black folk walking, but there's signs saying, you know, black lives matter. And some still don't understand why are you saying black lives matter? Well, every week there seems to be some kind of scenario where an African-American is killed by police or something. And yet people don't understand why you say we, we all lives matter. We know that, but what we don't acknowledge as a society is something is going wrong. Right. That's, that's what we're getting at. All lives matter. And currently some are not being, yeah, neither are the most controversial of statements. I am a man and, and black lives matter. I always thought, you know, I think I think I always over-index for my own lived experience, right? I can only kind of talk to what I've seen, but it seems to me proximity to others has a profound effect on stopping the mythology building around other people. If you're lucky enough to be around other groups of people in a way where you're really in community with them, not just like a, you know, you, you see them somewhere, mm -hmm. but you really are able to sit in community with um, diverse groups of people all over the country, it really breaks down everything relatively quickly. I had this incredibly lucky experience where, you know, I grew up, my father was this international wrestler. And so we got to hang out with Iranians and Soviets. And this is during the 80s, right? <laughs> the 80s and early 90s. And Soviets and Cubans and, you know, Koreans. And, and so I kind of was taught that from the get-go, just from that lived experience of these national teams living at my house. And so I don't know how... I just wonder wonder if you've seen that yourself and if you've seen if you believe in that proximity as like part of the answer there and if you've seen ways that that's been attempted to be instituted. Well, I certainly believe that that is one method that does create sensitivity. Um, and, and one of the ways maybe we address this issue in schools, starting in kindergarten and nursery school, we need sensitivity, human relations and diversity training. You can't mandate it, that unless the public says this is what we want. But I mean, that is, it, it really is orientation. It's an orientation and it's, a, you know, all of the attitudes that we have, most of us, we are taught by our parents. A child does not come in the world racist. Yeah. It was not born. Now he may, he or she may be aggressive, assertive. Those are personality traits. Right. But what you learn about how to become racist and sexist is behavior that is promoted somewhere. And so I think that you've got to use every tool in the toolbox. So my first view is if we could get Americans to say, we want to at least experience diversity, sensitivity, and human relations. And we want to put this in our school system. You know, we're having a lot of discussions now in, in, in various uh, communities very elite schools are removing their children, saying that this concept of being too woke is suppressing white people uh, or making white people feel bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting discussion because the goal is to inform people, not to make you feel bad, 
but you need to know what happened from a historical perspective so that you have appreciation and hopefully not make those same mistakes or continue those traditions. That's a difficult line. It's difficult to figure out how to serve, how to serve up a, this is why some of these like movies are so good at this, uh, but how to serve up a message where it's digestible, but it's okay that it's uncomfortable too, right? Like how do you hit that perfect medium of you can digest it, but it's still the truth. You didn't water it down so much that the lesson wasn't learned. It's, I was actually going to ask you about that from the get go. Cause you talked about building a large coalition and that's, what's needed to, you know, advance this fight, win on these issues uh, and create a better world. And I don't know if this is just the social media era and everyone's brand building, but I feel like some of the movements I'm a part of approximate to there's sometimes an exclusionary aspect of it where people are using maybe language that they're updating language that, you know, other people maybe don't, don't feel they know. And so they're not a part of it. And I don't know if like the, a lot of this most recent kind of evolution of the movement, I think there was a lot of it, which was, it was important that it was like step, step back and follow folks who have been fighting for this for a long time. But then I felt like there was almost a culture of a new type of language and everything that wasn't the easiest for people new to this to step into or wasn't the kindest to people who were just getting educated on the issue. There's a lot of people who are like, we're frustrated you're not here already and get over here and, and shut up. But I had felt this undercurrent of people who were, who were excited to get involved, but almost scared to get involved too, because they're scared they were going to say something wrong and be called out, et cetera. Um, did, you, did you feel any of that? I just want to get your thoughts there. Well, I, I don't know that I directly felt it, but I can see uh, in terms of analysis how, you know, some could feel that way. Uh, because, you know, my view is you just have to you have to do and say what you believe. Yeah. And again, that's part of what makes this country potentially great. But it also makes it challenging because everybody's not going to agree with you. You know, many people today or some who they don't know anything about Malcolm X much except for by any means necessary. Right. And that automatically assumes violence, which may or may not have been what Malcolm X was talking about. Uh, but it, you could interpret it that way. And of course, Malcolm X grew. He was far more than just this one uh, soundbite that is attributed to him. And then many people, m most people don't understand nonviolence. And so they feel like it's passive and it's, you, you know, you, you got to fight fire with fire. Well, that's the same philosophy of an eye for an eye and a two for a tooth. And if we truly practice that, most of us would be without eyes and teeth. <laughs> so yeah. obviously that, that cannot work for sustenance. You cannot be sustained by the philosophy of an eye for an eye and a two for a tooth. But, you know, I, I always look at and am inspired by individuals who have the capacity to forgive and embrace this kind of love and forgiveness. And what I mean by that, and that's what I hope I do, but most people don't think about this because it's been a long time. My dad was gunned down at 10 years old uh, by a white man. Uh, my uncle mysteriously drowned when I was 11 because he was asking questions about my father. My grandmother, this is the thing that people don't know, was gunned down, my father's mother, in the church while playing the Lord's Prayer. So it would have been easy for me to hate black folk and white folk because my grandmother was gunned down by a black man. But I fortunately chose the path of embracing love. So I learned to dislike the evil act but still love the individual. Mm. And 
you know, I look at communities. You, you, tragically, some very sick person went into an Amish community some years ago. It's probably, it's probably been in the last 10 years. And they killed three or four kids. And the Amish people immediately forgave that crazy person. And, you know, I was like, boy, if we could learn that. I mean, when, when 9-11 took place, yeah, I understand you got to defend yourself. I get that. But I also thought, why don't we create a different paradigm? Instead of going back and trying to destroy somebody right. who we thought was trying to destroy us. And, you know, this is this, this typical playbook. If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back harder. We'll be fighting that battle forever. I feel like something that's at the core of like, there's this core narrative that you understand in your, your family is understood, which is that like hurt people hurt people. Like mm -hmm. actually someone doing something bad is, can be a red flag for like, oh, there's a problem happening. Maybe to even this whole population, like this first person to riff off your 9-11, you know, example could have been a red flag of like, man, this whole area, what's going on over here in this area? that's causing people to want to fly planes and blow themselves up. I, I think that's why we don't get there at times and we don't spend enough time being careful about what narratives we opt into. I got really lucky. My father was murdered uh, a couple months before I turned 10, actually. Uh, and I got really lucky that the, the person who murdered him was someone we knew and we knew was sick. And so that narrative couldn't really build. You couldn't tell me how this guy was. This guy was at my birthday parties. I knew who he was, you know, hmm. and we had, we had a lot of other things going on in that, you know, after the trial, the family we lived with actually ended up inheriting his wealth uh, because the guy didn't testify and would visit him in jail and whatnot. And, and, and so we had some of like what people would categorize as betrayal as well. I say all that to say like, because of all this was done to to us by people we knew, I could see their story. But like, I didn't have to like try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so I knew they were hurting or they were sick or they were, you know, facing poverty, et cetera. So I, I got to adopt that narrative from an early age. And that, then once you have it, you see it everywhere, right? Then you know, you know what you're looking for when, when people are acting up. But I I wonder as we talk about first pillars, you know, in solving all of these these triple evils, that narrative and like other important narratives, like how, how do you see your work as narrative work at times? Like this exact thing you just told me on, you know, embracing love and your reaction to violence with love. Well, yes, because there, there are six steps and six principles to nonviolence. And I, I want to share the, the steps first, because this helps to resolve conflict. And wherever there is, wherever, I mean, conflict is all over the world. And right. this is what my father and his team used over and over again. The first step is in, information gathering. So before you can resolve anything, you've got to consolidate and, and get all of the information. Now, information is different from education. So the second step is personal commitment. You get people to say, okay, I want to personally be involved to resolve this is whichever side I'm on. But that these are hard things to do. Yeah. You know, information gathering, personal commitment. Then the third is you have to educate the whole community. That's the process of what you're to until you can educate and understand the various narratives, then you may miss the mark. The fourth step is negotiation. So when you, by the time you get to negotiation, probably 60, 70% of the conflict could be resolved in negotiation. But if you don't get resolution in negotiation, you go to the fifth step, which is direct action, which could be boycott and protest and marching, which could be, you know, sending emails, tweeting, could be, you know, any form of, 
of, of protesting at the highest level. And then the sixth step is reconciliation, bringing the community back together. Now I'm saying all that to say that what we see in America today is people have a little information in, and I'm not, if I'm being critical, it's hopefully constructively critical because I don't ever want to criticize young people engaged in demonstrating. But we get a little information and then we go to protests, direct action, yeah, yeah, yeah. civic engagement. And that's, that's good, but we really need to figure out, we, the problem is we don't have enough time to, to do all these steps because stuff is coming at us. It, it's almost like there are all these books on a shelf and there's an unlimited amount of books. They just keep coming at you. So, you, you know, what do you do? Um, you're overwhelmed. So you, you go from step one, instead of being able to take a book, put it down, put it aside, maybe open it and read and see what's there. You know, you just go to the next step and you want to get this pressure uh, addressed. Right. And that's why I'm very concerned, by the way, and we alluded to this earlier, about the fact that when is enough going to be enough there's a pressure cooker and at some point people explode you don't want that to happen i don't want to even project or predict that but i just know human behavior and at some point you know enough will be and you never know when it's going to happen so somehow we got to figure out how do we quell and keep that from getting to that point so that it does not explode and be disruptive to all of us where are we winning right now? Where are you feeling like you're winning most? What what makes you most hopeful? You know, out of out of all the work you're working on, as you're taking on these big challenges, what's working right now? Well, the fact that young people are out here in the streets every day, and when I say young people, I mean groups like March for Our Lives, mm. uh, groups like you know, even of course Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. And then they're young kids. I saw your daughter speak. How old's your daughter? Well, she, she'll be 13 next month. But she, she started back at March for Our Lives at eight years old. Yeah. So, you know, you got Little Miss Flint. You've got other kids around the country. I am excited about the engagement of young people, whether it's kids like my daughter or kids who are in high school. And, you know, obviously college kids always have been involved. Uh, sometimes they've been apathetic, but I think people are engaged now. Listen, I'm very excited about activism. That's what excites me and really among young people. I wonder for you, like as you look at this new age of activism and, you know, carrying the family legacy you do, knowing that the, the power that brings, you know, if you're involved in something, like what you feel like is your, I don't know if responsibility is the right word. Maybe it is. Maybe you do feel responsibility. But what, what's your responsibility or role in this next, you know, decade or so? So first of all, I think uh, my role is to continue to build uh, this vast coalition. And it's really, to me, it's global. It's not just domestic mm. uh, because it really is about protecting and preserving humankind in, in my judgment. Yeah. Uh, because dad used to say, we must learn nonviolence or we may face non-existence. And so it's using my platform with others as a megaphone to talk about, promote, to teach and train, to teach and train us how to be a better society mm. and how to, how to promote. It, 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 part of it is love and not, I don't mean romantic love or, 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 or I'm talking about this kind of love that is defined by agape, which is a love that is totally unselfish 
and seeks nothing in return. You, you love someone if they're old or young, rich or poor, black or white, Native American, Hispanic, Latino, African, Asian. You love them because, you know, you believe that and know that God loves you and you're called to do that. And so promoting that with as many people as possible. And like I said, I hope that whenever I share, it is in love. Even when I'm critical, I hope it's constructive, not destructive, and it's not personal. And sometimes it's even more difficult to even say you want to meet with someone who's of a different attitude or pers- persuasion than you. Right. Uh, we, but we can't be around. You, you, you'll never create any change if you're not willing to, to dialogue. And I'm, I'm raising that because right before Election Day, when Trump won, excuse me, Inauguration Day, I went to meet with President Trump president-elect at the time, the day before he was inaugurated, Mm -hmm. about several issues, because my view is, and I I was beat up and ostracized and criticized on social media, and and that's fine, because my point and my belief and view is that whomever is president, you have to be engaged with to get anything done, or else you're not considered or thought about. My dad, when he was at SCLC uh, in the in the 50s, it was President Nixon, President Eisenhower, and Vice President Nixon. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, it was President Kennedy and Johnson. And the middle 60s, President Johnson and Vice President Humphrey. And he had relationships with every administration when he was, uh, which Republicans the first four or five years, and then Democrats the next years before he was killed. And so I fundamentally believe that. Now, obviously, my meeting with Trump led to nothing, but you don't know until you have a meeting. But I do believe someone has to be engaged uh, with those who are in power. I'm saying that to say we have to intentionally move out of our comfort zone. Uh, We can't just always be talking to the choir. And we have to talk to those who don't agree with us. Um, in some cases, if it's possible, it may even be meeting with a Klansman who they, we have diametric differences, but there may be an opportunity to get something going where there's some level of agreement. If you really believe in a philosophy, uh, you have to be willing to go above and beyond what is the norm and the tradition. You have to find ways to communicate with those who are not in the choir. Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.